Have you ever wondered why if Jesus was Jewish and the apostles were all Jewish, that we are not Jewish, that we are Christian instead? It's a question I get frequently from the children when I'm teaching them, and it's a good question. We want to know, you know, what happens that since Jesus was the fulfillment of Judaism, how did we end up no longer being Jewish but being Christian instead? Well, our first reading today gives a little bit of an insight into what began to create the separation of Judaism and Christianity into two separate religions. And it's what we hear in uh, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15 here. We only hear a small portion of it today. Uh, but I encourage you to go home and you know, pick up your Bible and read the whole thing because it teaches us something very important about how the church works even to this very day. Originally, of course, Jesus being the fulfillment of the promise of Israel, the apostles and everything, when after Pentecost, they went out and preached in Jerusalem, in the temple, and in the synagogues of Israel, trying to bring the Jewish people to conversion to, in, of Jesus. And eventually, it was inevitable that some Gentiles, people who had never been Jews in the first place, Greeks, Romans, whomever they may be, started hearing the gospel, and they too wanted to become Christians. Now, some of the disciples, especially the converted Pharisees, which is something that we often miss, that there were Pharisees who, after the resurrection and after Pentecost, did believe in Jesus and follow the church and become part of it. Well, they were saying, okay, well, no, you know, this can't happen. Only Jews. Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise to Israel. So only Jews can become uh, Christians and not Gentiles. But Peter had his very famous vision that you might recall of a canvas being lowered by the, to, from the sky by its four corners, and in it were all types of unclean animals that Jews would never eat according to the kosher laws, lobster, shrimp, well, pigs, things such as that. And the voice of the Lord says to Peter in the vision, get up, Peter, slaughter and eat. And Peter says to him, God forbid, Lord, nothing unclean has ever crossed my lips. And the Lord says to him, what God has called clean, you are not to call unclean. And this happened three times. And Peter realized from that, first of all, that we're no longer bound by the kosher laws, that Christians did not have to follow the Jewish kosher laws. So you can have all the cheeseburgers you want and, and all the ham sandwiches and your lobster. And yes, I can eat prosciutto. If you told me now I had to stop eating prosciutto, well, you might as well just kill me now. But not only did he discover that it was the kosher laws were no longer, that there was no longer any food that was unclean, but immediately after that happened, representatives from a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius showed up at the door of the place where he was staying, asking Peter to come with them at once. And Peter did, and when he met Cornelius, Cornelius told him he had had a vision of an angel from God asking to send for Peter to baptize him and his whole household. So. Jesus, uh, excuse me, Peter, right away remembering the vision and you know, realized that it's not just food that is not to be considered unclean, but people, that even the Gentiles were not to be considered unclean, and that they too could become followers of Jesus. So he baptized him and his whole household, and they were immediately filled with the Holy Spirit, just as had happened to them at Pentecost. And so Peter told this to uh, the people who were objecting to bringing the gospel to Gentiles, and they ceased to object. They said, well, all right, if that's what happened, then God is making salvation even available to the Gentiles. In other words, Jesus is the savior of all mankind, not just the Jewish people. 
But then some of those uh, converted Pharisees and a few others started saying, well, all right, so if they're going to be Christians, well, they got to jump through all the hoops. You know, and since Jesus was Jewish and we're all Jewish, they have to become Jewish first. So, and in Antioch, some men just went down on their own authority and just started telling people, well, you got to be Jewish now before you can become Christians, which means you have to obey all the Jewish laws and go to the synagogues on Saturday and, and pray. Oh, and you grown men, you're going to be circumcised. And of course, they balked at that and said, whoa, wait a minute. They said, we don't want to be Jews. We want to be Christians. But some of them were saying, no, you've got to go through all the motions. Since Jesus was Jewish, you have to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. Paul was pulling his hair out of his head over it, saying, what? Was, is salvation available through the Jewish law? If salvation is available through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And when he starts talking about and eventually writing in his letters, which it took a while for people to understand this, that he was talking about the works, that it, it, we're not saved by our works, but our faith in Jesus. He's not talking about good deeds. He's talking about works of the law, obedience to the Jewish law. He says, there, that does not bring us salvation, but our faith in Christ. He was debating with what he called the circumcisers, the ones who were trying to force Gentile converts to be circumcised in order to follow Jesus. Well, there was a big debate going on. And as we hear in the first reading, there was a lot of dissent and a lot of discussion, and it was causing some turmoil. So finally, they realized they had to have an answer to this. And it was a very important question. Do these Gentile converts have to become Jews first, or can they go straight into Christianity? Now, on a sidebar to this, today there are many Protestant denominations, and even sadly, I've seen some Catholics who believe in something we call sola scriptura, only the Bible, that the Bible is the sum source of all revelation of God. That, so we don't need the Pope, we don't need bishops, we don't need anybody else. If you have a question about the faith, just open your Bible and all the answers to faith are there in the Bible. So if they're true with that, and sometimes I'll hear people say to me, they'll even say, you know, where in the Bible does it say such and such is wrong? And this is even Catholics saying that, who are believing that the Bible is the full total of truth. And we as Catholics have never held that. It's an important part of truth, but uh, of revelation, but it's not the only source of revelation we have. But if these people, the Sola Scriptura people, were correct, then Paul and Barnabas, when they are debating with them, would have to say, all right, well, we have to get an answer to this question, so let's open the Bible and look at the Bible and see what the Bible says about this question. Do Gentile converts have to become Jews first? Well, obviously, they couldn't do that for a very basic reason. The Bible had not been written yet, especially the New, or the New Testament. The Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, had nothing whatsoever about whether Gentile converts to Christianity had to become Jews. And this was the year 49 AD, at least 10 years before Paul ever wrote the first of his letters. And the Gospel accounts, it would be decades before they were written and centuries before the church would finally codify all the books that we have in the Bible today. So. If the Bible is the sum total of truth and that's the only source of revelation, what did the Christians do for the first 300 years? How did they know any truth? Obviously, they did have another source, the magisterium, the teaching authority of the church. So if it's sola scriptura, Paul would have had to say, well, we can't answer that question yet because we don't have the Bible yet. We're going to have to wait until God gives us the Bible and people write it down. And once we have the Bible, then we'll answer that question for you. Ludicrous. Of course not. That's not what they did. 
they went up to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles, the ones that Jesus had given authority to speak in his name. So that completely blows the sola scriptura argument out of the water. So Paul and Barnabas, with a few others, probably others that were dissenting, you know, thinking that or insisting upon circumcision for the Gentiles, went up to Jerusalem to, and gathered the apostles together with them, and they talked about it. And Peter was there among them, and he was speaking through it. Now, we call this the Council of Jerusalem, the first ecumenical council of the church. Throughout history, whenever the church has a serious question that is needed to answer, it calls all the bishops together in union with the pope, discusses it, prays, reaches a solution, and then sends it out to people. And it's the highest teaching authority we have in the church. The most recent uh, ecumenical council, of course, was the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s. So here they got together and they discussed the issue. And even the apostles were divided on it. James, the apostle James, who was the bishop of Jerusalem, was one of the ones believing that Gentile converts needed to be circumcised and become Jews first. So Peter got up and told them the whole story about his vision and the work he'd done with them. And he says, my answer is this. He goes, this is my opinion. How can we oppose upon these people a law and a practice that we could never fulfill? We should not burden these people with this, but let them come directly to Christ. And when he spoke and said everything he did, uh, James changed his mind. He deferred to Peter and said to the brothers, Peter has spoken. He has said that this should not be, all right, I defer to him, I change my mind, okay, I now agree with him. No, the Gentile converts do not have to become Jews before they can become Christians. So they wrote it down. They sent it out by word of mouth and by letter to the people in Antioch and the areas where people had uh, disturbed their peace. And we hear that in the first reading. Since some people without any mandate from us went out and disturbed you, we have written to you now saying it is the decision of the Holy Spirit and ours that you do not have to follow the, the uh, Jewish customs. Just abstain from unlawful marriage, meat sacrifice to idols, which was a unique uh, situation uh, in their time. And so most of the people received it with great pleasure. This was now the teaching of the church. We had an answer here. And so the Gentile converts came straight into Christianity. They didn't have to become Jews first. In about the mid-60s AD, around the year 65 or 66, the Jews in Jerusalem who did not follow Jesus finally made the split complete by deciding they were sick and tired of people, of Jews who believed in Jesus, coming into synagogues and the temple Sabbath after Sabbath, trying to convince people to follow Jesus. And they finally said, that's it, we've had it. Anybody who acknowledges Jesus as the Messiah, you're excommunicated. You're thrown out of the synagogues and the temple. You cannot come and worship anymore. And so the Jewish Christians, which seems like an oxymoron to us, Jews who were believing in Christ, realized then they could no longer follow the Jewish laws. But they also realized they didn't have to because the answer now was Christ. And so they, only, they didn't have to go to the synagogue on Saturday and mass with the Christians on Sunday. Rather, they would just go on Sunday. And so from that point on, being Jewish Christians ceased to be, and we had the Gentile church. And so from about 66 AD, we were two completely separate religions. But let's look back again at the statement of the apostles at the end of the Council of Jerusalem. They sent this word out to the people and said, this is what we have decided after prayer. This is the decision of the Holy Spirit. Imagine some priest there, they didn't have parishes back then, but in his little community or his gathering, didn't like the decision. 
Suppose he decided, no, I think they're wrong. I think the Gentiles have to become Jews first. So I'm not listening to that. And here in my community, I'm going to demand that all the Gentiles be circumcised and follow the Jewish law. Well, what would we say to that man? We'd say, um, Father, you're being disobedient. The apostles have the authority to speak in the name of Jesus. Jesus gave that to Peter and the apostles when he said to him, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What you permit on earth shall be permitted in heaven and what you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Peter and the apostles with him have that authority. You do not. So therefore they are right and you do not speak for God just because you don't like what they said. Well. Suppose he continued to say, no, I'm sorry, I'm still just doing it my way. Well, what would we say to him? Sorry, but you're being dissident. You are being disrespectful. You are not respecting the authority of, that God has given the church. You are being disobedient, and you are a dissident. And we would not call that, say that person was in union with Christ, because obviously he is not, because he is teaching people something that is clearly contradictory to what the apostles had taught. And yet, how often do we see that in our world today? How many people, how many even members of the clergy, priests and bishops, religious, and especially Catholic politicians, who stand up and will openly defy clear and consistent teaching of the church and try to still call themselves devout Catholics and say, no, I'm perfectly in line, my opinion is perfectly in line with the church's teaching, and even though they're absolutely at odds with it. Well, they're being dissident and they're not representing the church. And it's confusing to people if they're allowed to continue to do that. And I always felt that when somebody is doing that, the authority of the church has to be clear with them and say, no, I'm sorry, that is wrong. And that's why I, for one, am very happy to have seen the news this week that Archbishop Corleone in San Francisco finally declared that Nancy Pelosi must not present herself to receive communion. I mean, he was one who was saying she's a devout Catholic and her belief in abortion is perfectly in line with Catholic teaching, which it certainly is not. And for her to say she's a devout Catholic in line with the Lord when she's dissident on a major and important teaching and then come to receive communion as if she's united with the Lord, well, she's not. And she's applying something there that is contradicted by her life and she'd be receiving communion not to her salvation but to her condemnation. So the bishop telling her that is for her own soul as well to say, you know, to try to keep her from violating, as St. Paul once said, anyone who receives the Eucharist unworthily receives it to his condemnation. He sins against the body and blood of the Lord. And somebody who was standing up and openly um, to, uh, advocating beliefs that clearly contradict church teaching on major uh, issues such as abortion, well, they are in that situation and they're sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And so I'm very happy that Archbishop Corleone did that, and I hope some of the other bishops will take strength from that and do that with some of the other Catholic politicians who have been so blatantly fighting the church on matters of extreme importance. But not everybody would go that far and be dissident. So suppose this priest, we're going back to in the time of the apostles, doesn't decide to be dissident. He goes, all right, fine, the apostles said that. And he says to them, all right, well, can you think it through again? You know, go back to it and yell, look it over a second time. Well, they would say, you know, we just did it. We did everything we're supposed to do. We prayed about it. We looked into it. We discussed it. And this is our decision. Yeah, but can you do it again just to be sure? So imagine they said, okay, fine, we'll do it again. So the apostles all gather again in Jerusalem and they debate the question and they come up prayerfully with the same answer. And they bring it to him and say, sorry, Father, but 
The answer is still no. This is the way it is. All right, do it a third time. And do it a fourth time. Well, now what we'll be saying, this guy is just throwing a temper tantrum. He's just being disobedient. He doesn't like the answer he got, and he's just going to keep bringing it up and pestering the Pope and maybe ho hoping just to br finally break him down till he finally says, okay, fine, I'm tired of this. Just have your circumcision and just, you know, give us peace. But that's not authentic discipleship. That's not following Jesus, and that's not obedience to the authority that Jesus has given. And a faithful disciple humbly accepts what the church teaches. But are there not so many people today who keep doing that? There are so many teachings that are clear and consistent. They've been a 2,000-year teaching of the church, and every time the church looks at it, comes back with the same answer, no, this is sinful, no, we cannot do that, yes, we must do this or that, and they don't like the answer, and they keep saying, well, petitioning, we want you to think about it again. We want you to change the teaching. We want you to change the teaching. Well, all they're doing is throwing a temper tantrum. Like little children, when mommy says, you know, can I watch the show tonight? No. Well, and they start crying. Let me watch the show. No. And they just throw themselves on the floor and throw a temper tantrum, hold their breath, and all those things that a child will do. Well, that's all these adults are doing today, is just throwing a temper tantrum. They didn't get the answer they want, and instead of humbly accepting it and changing their mind, they're just going to carry on and picket and complain and petition and protest until eventually the Pope gives them what they want. Childish behavior and a temper tantrum. But the hardest thing for so many people to do is to change their mind. What St. James did when Peter spoke and he realized that his opinion differed from Peter's and Peter had the authority, he changed his mind. My brothers and sisters, how hard it is for so many people to accept that. And there is so, so much division in the church today among many people because some people simply will not be humble and change their mind and say, well, all right, we brought it to the Pope, we brought it to the church, the church said no, then I guess that's the will of God. But instead, they just keep harping on it and trying to insist and insist until they get what they want. And in effect, what they're trying to do is get the church to get in step with the world and say things that are going to be popular. And that completely reverses the role of the church. The church is not here to get in step with the world, but rather to get the world to be in step with God by teaching the truth of God. And we can't change that just because it's unpopular or some people in the church don't like it. We must follow what the Lord is teaching us. And he always did say that it's not always easy to follow what he teaches. In fact, sometimes he says we have to take up our cross daily and follow him. But how will people ever want to follow Christians if they see us at each other's throats constantly fighting over these issues. Jesus, the night before he died, prayed, Father, I pray that they will be one in me as I am one in you. Nobody would want to join a group where everybody is infighting. But if they see us united in our belief and preaching it to people by our unity of faith, that will encourage other people to want to join and follow the Lord. In these last few weeks of Easter, as we prepare for Pentecost, that is one of the things we pray for, for Christian unity, and especially unity among ourselves and our own Catholic faith. We pray today, let's pray that all people who are having difficulty with whatever the situation may be, that they're disagreeing with the church's teaching on this matter or that, will be humble enough to admit when the church has spoken, Christ has spoken through the church, and he has given us the truth, and we can be confident in that and that we must follow that truth, the truth that will set us free, and then be united with one another so we can present a united opinion to the world so that all the world will embrace the gospel of Christ and follow him into the salvation he won for us.
May Jesus Christ be praised now and forever. Thank you for listening to this week's homily by Father Carrozza. If you enjoyed this homily, please pass the word on to your friends and invite them to listen. For more materials from Father Carrozza, please visit www.fathercarrozza.com.